want to read to you today from uh, the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 2, and I'm going to read just the first seven verses, and I'm going to read them from the New Living Translation. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You've examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the work you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favour. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Well, that's God's word uh, for us today. Um, in both Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 2, Jesus is pictured as walking among the lampstands which represent the church. He's not above us looking down or outside looking in. He is with his people. And it's for this reason that each message to the churches begins with the words, I know. Jesus knows what we are going through and he comes to us, journeying with us and bringing the word that we need to hear, bringing the power and peace of his presence. Again, we should note that his presence does not necessarily mean that our circumstances will change, but that we'll begin to see them in a proper perspective and we will be equipped to persevere faithfully through them and so overcome them. The city of Ephesus was regarded with some justification as the main city of the province of Asia. It was a major financial and trade centre of the empire. Its banks held huge monetary deposits and the city was located on the most important seaport on the western coast of Asia. So people from all over the world came to live and work there. The amphitheatre could seat 24,000 people and the Pan-Ionian Games, second only to Olympic Games in Athens, were held in Ephesus. It was also, of course, a major centre of pagan worship. Most notably, it was the home of the worship of Artemis. She was a goddess of fertility and the very embodiment of sexuality and sexual lust. The temple dedicated to her was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and was built on a platform more than a thousand square feet in size. From 29 BC, the city also became one of the centres for worship of the emperor and four times over the next 200 years it won the honour of building a temple dedicated to the reigning emperor of the time. So Ephesus was a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-faith city and it was in this thoroughly uh, cosmopolitan and pagan city that the Church of Jesus Christ was established 
and the church grew despite opposition and persecution. Church tradition says that after Paul left the city, Timothy became the pastor, uh, but he was executed by the Romans, uh, and then the Apostle John became their pastor. And by the time John wrote Revelation, the church in Ephesus had become the centre of the global Christian movement at the time. Only when Christianity became the official religion of the empire would that centre shift to Rome. Jesus comes to these believers as the one who walks among the lampstands. In other words, he comes as the one who is intimately aware of all that is happening in the church in Ephesus. Jesus, the living word, brings his word to them and he begins with praise. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. He commends them for rejecting false apostles for their endurance of persecution for the sake of his name. He also commends them for their hatred of the works of the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about this group, but the little we do know suggests that they were teaching that it was okay to participate in worship of the emperor and at the same time remain faithful to Christ. So this is a church that's zealously committed to maintaining the internal purity of doctrine and practice. As one writer puts it, the Ephesian church was the kind of church to which the experts would have flocked to pick up the principles on being a successful church. Even today, most books about the nature and structure of the church focus on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so Jesus' words in verse 4, but I have this against you, would have come as a bit of a shock. It certainly would have shocked John, their pastor, in exile. But when Jesus said, I know your deeds, he meant all of their deeds. The one whose eyes are like flaming fire sees through all our pretensions and facades. He sees the true condition of his church. And as he looks at Ephesus, he sees that they've abandoned the love they had at first. The object of this love is not immediately clear from the text itself. It's often assumed that it's love for Christ, and that's certainly implied. But at the same time, he praises them that they're enduring patiently and bearing up under trial for the sake of his name. So there's clearly love for Christ there. Given the zeal with which they protected the purity of their doctrine, it's possible that the love for one another was lacking. And history certainly proves that churches have often been guilty of witch hunts against other believers. But it's likely that this rebuke refers most clearly to a love for the lost. As Beale notes that since they are commended for their zeal in maintaining the internal purity of the church and their doctrine, the rebuke must deal with their focus towards the outside world. Furthermore, in rebuking them for abandoning their first love, Jesus calls them to do the works they did before. Now we know from Acts 19 that Paul's mission there was very successful, so successful that many people came to faith, including a number of people who practiced magic and who, upon confessing Christ as their Lord and Saviour, uh, brought all their books of magic valued at 50,000 pieces of silver and publicly burned them. In fact, so many people came to faith in Christ that the idol makers in the city almost went out of business. Uh, 
and so they stirred up a riot against the church. And now, decades later, it looks like the main focus of the church, rather than mission, is to maintain the purity of doctrine within the church. And to be fair, they did this for good reason. In Acts 20, we read about Paul's final meeting with the Ephesian elders in which he warned them, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. In Matthew 7 and 15, Jesus himself warned the disciples, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. In the secular post-Christian world that we live in today, churches are generally just so glad that new people want to join that they have forgotten that warning. And we have allowed wolves in sheep's clothing in amongst the flock. And so the Ephesian church has good cause to guard the doctrinal purity of the church, for they have been specifically warned that some would even rise up from among their own ranks and not spare the flock. It's my firm conviction that knowing biblical doctrine is really important and the lack of it is a serious problem in the church today. However, the love of sound doctrine can easily lead to a loss of love for people, especially towards those who have a different understanding of doctrine than we do ourselves. It can lead to a cold, legalistic faith in which people's lives are judged by their adherence to a particular doctrinal standard. And so it's possible that in their zeal for guarding the inward purity of the church, it had a negative impact on their love for one another. Loving the doctrine all too often becomes more important than loving the person. Hatred for the deeds of the Nicolaitans easily becomes hatred of the Nicolaitans. In the early years of the church's life, Paul wrote to the Ephesians commending them for their love towards all the saints. But John never mentions anything like that now. It is worth noting that a loss of love for Christ is implied in the rebuke. And that is not disconnected from loving one another or from loving non-believers. For as Beale notes, a passionate love for Christ leads us to love others, those outside, and seeks to win them. It's notable when you read missionary stories that was to have a love for the people they're trying to reach with the gospel. The thing that really drives them is their love for Christ. It's their love for Christ that they want people to know him. That's what drives them to go out and endure all kinds of hardship and trials. We should also know that love for Christ and love for one another are inseparable. As John himself wrote in 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And it shouldn't need said that love is not a 
kindly feeling towards someone. Love is how you behave towards someone. It's seen in actions, how you treat a person. Jesus calls the Ephesian church and through them us to do three things. Firstly, he calls them to remember. They're called to think back to how things were at the beginning, to remember the love for Christ that motivated them to love each other and to proclaim the gospel in word and deed, and how that love uh, motivated all that they did. The point of this is probably to help them see that where they are now has fallen short of where they once were. He's calling them to take stock and reflect on their true condition of their relationship with him. Bums on seats is not a true indicator of the spiritual health of a church. As Keith Green famously said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. The amount of stories of abuse, of, of sexual abuse, abuse of power um, uh, by church leaderships, by congregations towards church leaderships, the story after story that is told it indicates the truth of that statement. So remember, remember, think back to how things were at the beginning and do those things again. Repent, the word used here means to turn around, to go in another direction and it involves changing schedules, changing habits, changing commitments in order to restore what's been abandoned by refocusing our attention on Jesus. Revelation is constantly seeking to redirect our gaze away from other things to Jesus. It is to him that the Ephesians and all believers must now turn. And lastly, he calls them to redo the things they did at first. The Ephesians need to get back to redoing the things they did at first in loving Christ and through loving the lost and loving one another. When the Ephesian church was founded, they were so committed and active that the whole province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Acts 19 and 10. They need to rediscover the love they had abandoned so that it might reignite their passion for mission once more. When a church loses its passion for mission, it drifts into maintenance mode and a long, slow decline from life to death. Jesus gives his people repeated opportunities to remember, repent and redo. But you know, there comes a time, a time that's not known to us, when Jesus says enough is enough and time runs out. And so the day of decision is always now. Tomorrow may be too late. For with that call to remember, repent and redo comes a dire warning. If they don't do these things, then Jesus will come to them again. But this time he will come as their judge and will remove their lampstand from its place. The meaning of this phrase is much debated, but it seems clear that the lampstand is symbolic of the Holy Spirit's presence among them and the church's mission to be a light in the world. The Ephesian church that had contained and shed abroad so much light through their witness might lose it entirely. But here's the rub. 
The seven churches represent all churches throughout time. And so the warning that is given to them stands still for every church today. And sadly, the Ephesian church did not heed the warning. Jesus doesn't make empty threats. And so the church and the city itself have vanished. All that remains today are some ruins and place names on a map. But the message to the Ephesian church ends not with that warning, but with a promise. Those who conquer will eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The word paradise takes our thoughts back to the criminal on the cross who was given the promise, today you'll be with me in paradise. The way to the tree of life of the first creation is blocked because of our sin, but now because of Jesus, the way to the tree of life in the new creation is open, and it too is in the paradise of God. When we think of paradise, we most likely think of heaven, however we imagine that to be. But that's not what Jesus was promising the criminal crucified beside him. And it's not what he's promising the Ephesian church or us in this passage. God is always greater than we imagine. And so he promises so much more than we can imagine. We need to think about this phrase in a Middle Eastern cultural context. For example, if we think of a king like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he would have been surrounded all day by courtiers, by people petitioning him for favours. He would have been busy all day with the affairs of state. He would have been constantly occupied with everything necessary for running a vast empire. Visits from ambassadors and dignitaries and all that stuff. And there would have been times when Nebuchadnezzar asked the king need a break from all the business of being the king. And at such times he would retire to his private garden where only a select few could enter. You can picture the scene we hear of the, the famous hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so it's not hard to imagine a very lush Seen trees giving shade, water fountains, flowers of all kinds to delight the senses. But the private garden of the king was called paradise. It's the same word used here. Jesus promised the criminal beside him much more than he had asked for. For he would not just be granted access to the kingdom but to the private garden, the intimate space of God. That's what Jesus promises to the church in Ephesus. And that's what he promises to us. Love is at the heart of all that it means to be the church. It's Christ's love for us that brought us into the church, his body. It's our love for Christ that motivates us to mission, to love the lost. It motivates us to support, encourage and strengthen and forgive and just love one another. It's that love that draws the world's inquiring gaze. Whatever else we do, let's not forget the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 to 3. 
If I speak in tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. When one of our grandchildren was ill recently, we bought a digital thermometer to measure their temperature. Whilst believing biblical truth is vitally important, I want to suggest to you today that the true measure of the temperature of our love for Christ is our love for the lost expressed in sharing the good news with them and in our love for one another in our acts of mercy and grace. And I fear that in too many of our churches today, the love of Christ expressed in mission has been replaced with love for the church expressed in maintenance. And love for one another, well, all too often it's just clanging gongs. May the love that Paul speaks of in Corinthians, may the love that John speaks of here and Jesus speaks of here in Revelation, may that love be the love that burns fiercely in us as we journey on the pilgrim way. God bless you all this week. Thanks for listening.